0: I'd like to direct your attention to the words found in the Gospel of Mark. We'll be looking at Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, as we've just sung, we need to be fed by your food, the food of your word. Because we often, even like the disciples in the book of Mark, have hard hearts. And we don't see or understand fully your word. We are often very half-hearted in our devotion either because of our ignorance or just because of our sin. And I pray that you would work through your word to assist us, to, to, to strengthen us, to direct us to be more like you, that we might be more faithful to fulfill the calling that, to which you have called us, that we might honor the gospel with both our lives as well as with our proclamation of it. And so feed us with your word. And assist us as we examine the Gospel of Mark. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you know, today we begin a new series on the Gospel of Mark. And uh, I think it's it's important to establish at the outset that each Gospel writer really has a different focus. Each Gospel writer is making his own argument. In fact, the stories themselves make an argument. And the argument that the gospel of Mark is making, sorry, that Mark, the author of the gospel of Mark is making, is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And of course, that's why he begins the way he does in chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And as Mark presents his evidence for this claim, he's going to demonstrate the various ways people respond to Christ or how they respond to what he says. And there are four main characters or four main responses that Mark illustrates in his gospel. First of all, there are people who primarily view Christ as a threat. They're they're threatened by Christ's authority. He claims his claims threaten their worldview and all that their lives have been invested in. And these people are primarily illustrated by the response of the religious leaders. And there are also people who are drawn to Christ because of his compassion and power. They recognize if they come to him and are touched by him, they can be healed by any infirmity and they're desperate to come to him but they're also very reluctant to obey his word and this group is primarily represented by the crowds another group are those who are following Christ that theme of follow is very thick in the gospel of mark they're following Christ they they love his authority they're drawn to his words They appear to want to be like him. They believe he's the Christ. And they're greatly anticipating this work that the Christ is going to accomplish. However, when reality hits, that he is not the Christ that they expected. And when he gets crucified, they fall away. And this group is actually represented by the disciples. The final group is represented by those who are willing to follow Christ, no matter what the cross. When they decide to follow him, they leave everything behind and they're willing to count the cost of following Christ. And there are actually very few of these people presented in this gospel. And so I actually think that it's Mark's aim that his readers would want to be such people. In summary, there's four groups. Religious leaders. and They have a conflict with Christ, particularly over his authority and his claims. There's the crowds. They're drawn to his power, but they're reluctant to obey him. And there's also the faithless disciples. They follow him, but with persecution, they fall away. And then, of course, there's the faithful disciples, and they're willing to leave everything and follow him. And then proclaim him. So again, Mark in this gospel does not just want to tell us what Christ did or what Christ says, though he certainly wants to do that. But he also wants to emphasize how people respond to Christ. The focus of almost all his stories is both what Christ says and does and then how do people respond. And he highlights their responses in these various categories. And so this gospel is very applicable. See, Mark is not content just to tell us who Jesus Christ is. He wants to probe our hearts as we're reading, as we hear about Christ, to ask, which one of these people are you like? How are you responding to Jesus? So, verse 1, which is our focus today, not only asserts what Mark is going to be telling us about Jesus. It also presents the structure of Mark's gospel. And it's there for you in your outline. What I would like to t- uh, point out to you is, is the, the main divisions. Are, it's split in the middle of chapter 8. And that has two bases. One in the first eight chapters really focus on Christ's ministry throughout Galilee, in and around Galilee. And the second half is his ministry on his way to Jerusalem and in Jerusalem. But also, there's a focus on Jesus as the Messiah or the Christ in the first half. And then the second half, it's, the focus is really on Jesus as the Son of God. But if you look at the subpoints, also, these are themes that tie all of the different stories together that Mark presents. So Mark, Again, Mark's not just picking and choosing stories about Jesus so we kind of get a sense of who he is. He selects particular stories in order to make an argument. And these stories are centered around a theme. So in the, in the first, each subpoint in the first section, all four groups that I mentioned of how people respond to Jesus, um, are demonstrated regularly. They're pictured. And in the second section, the subpoint zero in on particular groups. The first subpoint, the blindness of disciples, that's the focus. In the second, it's the animosity of the religious leaders. And in the third, Mark just presents a, a plethora of responses to Jesus regarding his um, betrayal, his death, and then his resurrection. And so we're going to look at all those today. And, re- and so I would encourage you, open your Bibles, because I'm actually going to preach the whole Gospel of Mark. And I want you to see how these themes get tied together and, and to see how Mark's pressing us. How are you going to respond to what jesus says and does so again the main point of this gospel is that jesus christ is the son of god and in light of that how will you respond let's look first at the galilean ministry galilean ministry that jesus is the christ and and you'll notice that it, it begins with john the baptist which is surprising And I think Mark begins here because it's because of John's preaching ministry. John came not only proclaiming Christ, but he came proclaiming a gospel of repentance. And this theme of proclamation, this theme of preaching is one that is um, seen throughout the gospel of Mark, particularly by those who choose to follow him. Those who follow him also proclaim him. And John is like the quintessential faithful disciple. He is clearly in that fourth group because he's willing to give it all up. And in fact, every story in the Gospel of Mark is about Jesus. It's about what Jesus does, except for two. And there's two lengthy sections that are completely devoted to one other person, and that's John the Baptist. Mark wants us to see and recognize there's something very unique about John the Baptist. And I think he's really setting him forth as, this, as saying, this is what it looks like. This is what a faithful follower of Christ looks like. But, of course, John's not just a follower. He's the antecedent to Christ. He proclaims the coming of Christ. And it's also interesting that the gospel begins with the proclamation that Christ is coming, but it also ends with proclamation as well. There's an abrupt ending to the gospel with the angel telling the ladies who came to the tomb, go and tell his disciples. Go tell them that Jesus Christ is no longer dead. And so there's this, there's this uh, book ending of preaching the gospel that we see in Mark. And so I think Mark wants to draw our attention to that. Well, right after we are introduced to John the Baptist, we come to Jesus. And what is Jesus doing? The same thing John is doing. He's proclaiming a very similar message of repentance. Notice uh, chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And this really centers a focus on both Jesus' proclamation ministry, his preaching ministry, and his healing ministry. And the two of those go together. As he goes from town to town, he both proclaims truth about who he is and what the law means and instructs us, And but also he heals people. And that begins, of course, with his preaching in Capernaum with the the, the, and then the healing, of course, of a demon-possessed boy. And notice I want to point out some responses. In that first chapter, you have the response of the crowds, beginning in verse 29. The crowds start to come in droves as they recognize he's going to heal them. But you'll also see that they struggle to obey him. He tells them to be silent. Don't tell other people. And they go and do just the opposite. He'll heal a single individual and he say, don't tell anybody. And then they'll ignore it and go tell all their friends. So they'll receive his help, but they don't listen to his words. And then in chapter 2, you have the response of the religious leaders. And the religious leaders, they take issue with his authority again and again. Here in chapter 2, they take issue with his authority to forgive sins. Notice chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus defends his authority to forgive sins when he says, but, that, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. So Jesus has authority to forgive as well as to heal. But these, these religious leaders also take issue with his association with sinners. Later on in this chapter, Jesus calls Matthew is a tax collector, and they go to Matthew's house, and they're throwing a party, and the religious leaders see this. And Jesus explains to them in verse 17. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Now, the religious leaders really struggle with this because their understanding is that it's obedience to their man-made traditions the extra laws that they added to the law so that they could make sure they keep the law, the tradition of the elders, it's described in this gospel. They think if they follow these traditions, they're going to be good. That's what establishes them in their righteousness. And then Jesus comes in and undermines everything that they've built their righteousness upon. I mean, notice this. Uh, chapter 2, verse 18, he undermines their tradition of fasting. Then he undermines their understanding of the sabbath chapter 2 verse 23 and he says the son of man is lord over the sabbath that is by his own authority he determines what can and cannot be done on the sabbath i mean those are fighting words to the religious leaders i mean he's saying there's a new sheriff in town and it's not you which is why after he heals a man in chapter 3 the religious leaders seek to kill him. Now, before we just dismiss the religious leaders as a bunch of jerks, let's recognize. I mean, understand why they're so upset. Not that they should be, but just understand. I mean, have you ever had been in a situation where some new guy shows up and asserts his authority, disregarding your experience? Maybe you're. You've had. You, Twenty years of experience as a uh, nCO in in the military, and then some young officer right out of uh, his training starts telling you how to do your job better what does he know or maybe at your job some teenager shows up and starts telling you how you, they, you know you can you need to do things how you can improve, or even if it's just like your younger sibling telling you how to behave or act i mean when that happens how do you want to respond to that person you want to take them down you want to show them they have no reason for this authority Well, we're a lot more like these guys than we might think because jesus i mean recognize jesus is tearing down all that they've invested their life in and he's saying basically it's all empty it's a house of cards all of that is pointing to me. I mean, He's saying, you either seek your righteousness in following me, or you have no righteousness. You guys are just a bunch of frauds. Why they hate him. Which brings us to chapter 3, and that continues to demonstrate various responses to, uh, from these various groups. I won't highlight all of them for the second time, but... Let's look at chapter four, because chapter four really clarifies Mark's purpose of examining how people respond to Christ. We have, of course, the parable of the sower. And and, and these parables, these four parables Mark has in chapter four, really emphasize the main themes of Mark. In the parable of the sower, the, the parable highlights four different responses that we see to Jesus. You have the seed that's sowed on the ground by the road, and and the bird comes and takes it away. Satan takes away the word. That's what it's referring to. There's the soil on the rocky ground. People hear with joy, and when things get difficult, they fall away. Then there's the thorny soil. The cares of this life, the riches consume them, and they choke the word. And of course, there's seed in the good soil. And this refers again to that, those people that not only receive the word, but then they bear fruit. And notice, a hundredfold. They produce great fruit after receiving the word. And then the next three parables really just illustrate how the kingdom of God expands. And it's really about preaching. It it, it doesn't, it doesn't come in with Jesus, the Messiah, just taking down everybody, which eventually he will but it's actually going to expand first and foremost or first primarily in time through the preaching of the word and it will bear fruit. And so this first section really closes as if to ask which soil are you? Which soil are you? And the second section highlights themes of faith and fear. Faith and fear. Chapter 4, verse 35. You have this response of fear by the disciples. They, they're terrified in the midst of a, of a storm. And ask Jesus, Do you care about us? But when they see the wind and see, obey Christ, their fear actually increases. And they're rebuked by Jesus for their lack of faith. And then the next story, you have the herdsmen. After Jesus heals the Gerasene demoniac, they're terrified. And it says in verse 17, they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And then you have those who have a response of faith. The the people I would like to characterize as the 12s. You have the woman who's had a hemorrhage for 12 years and then... um, Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed. You also have the man named Jairus who has a 12-year-old daughter whose Jesus raises from the dead. And he tells him in verse 36, do not fear, only believe. This theme of not having fear, but believing. Because these people believe Christ, they're healed. Believing is what leads to healing. And then, of course, you have The response of Herod to John the Baptist. To close out this section, chapter 6, verse 14. The section culminates with Herod's fearful response of John. He's afraid of John. And he eventually has him executed because of his greater fear of his guests. And he kills him. And so the second section closes it to ask Are you going to live in fear? Or will you trust him? You're going to live in fear, which really leads to destruction. Eight, trust him, which leads to healing and results in proclamation. The third section. I like to t- title food problems versus heart problems. Because there's this theme of both eating, particularly bread, but also having a hard heart. And in uh, beginning in chapter 6, verse 30, you have that famous incident of the feeding of the 5,000. And in this, Jesus is really pictured as the great shepherd feeding his sheep. Which is why I chose Psalm 23 for our scripture reading today. There's a lot of allusions to that psalm, as you'll see. And so Jesus feeds his sheep. Notice chapter 6, verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great cow, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And notice the various responses to this shepherd's feeding. In chapter 6, verse 45, you notice that the, the, the disciples have a hard heart. They did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Then you have the response of the crowds. Chapter six, 53. They continue to seek him and they just want to be touched by him, but they're not listening to his words. This emphasis of touching there. And then you have the response of the religious authority. Chapter seven, beginning with. um, Verse one, they they. They don't like the way that Jesus' disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. And Jesus then explains to them, it's not what goes into a man that defiles them. It's what comes out of the man. Verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of man. It's a heart problem. Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come within, are from within, and that's what defiles a person. Again, they think their righteousness is about their law-keeping, and Jesus says, no, your greater need is not to follow these rules. It's to recognize your heart is the problem. Don't be so focused upon washing your hands before you eat. The problem is not food. It's your heart. And then you have the response of genuine faith. Notice chapter 7, verse 24. I love this. This with a Syrophoenician woman once healing for her daughter. And then verse 27, he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on children's crumbs. Again, the focus of bread, of food. She has faith. I'll take whatever I can get, Christ. Then you have the response of the crowds. Chapter 731. And after he heals a deaf and mute man, guess what happens? They disobey him again. Verse 36, Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. I mean, it's like blatant disobedience. Don't do this. And then they go and do it. And then, of course, you have the response of the disciples and a very important warning that Jesus gives in, in this section, beginning in chapter eight. And it's this warning that goes unheeded after feeding the four thousand through another miraculous provision of bread. He warns the disciples in verse 15. Watch out, beware of the leaven, the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And then we find out, he asks, why don't you understand what I'm talking about? They're confused. And and he asks them, do you have a hardened heart? And so this third section closes as if to ask, do you, reader, recognize that your problem is ultimately a heart problem? Your problem is not primarily financial. It's not primarily physical. It's not primarily relational. Your problem is your own heart. That's what needs to be changed. And of course, that's what leads to the reason why Jesus starts to go to Jerusalem. The only way to change this heart problem is for the Messiah, the Christ, to die. And that's what brings us to chapter 8, verse 22. The partial blindness of the disciples in the Jerusalem ministry. So, this focus of Jesus' ministry shifts in chapter 8. He's no longer about a ministry of healing and proclamation. He's about his healing, his spiritual healing, his mission of spiritual healing upon the cross. And this first section really highlights the spiritual blindness of the disciples. And again, there's three sections here, and they're each broken up by Jesus' statement. That he has to go to the cross. And he keeps telling the disciples this, but they don't get it. They're like the blind man, spiritually speaking, in chapter 8, verse 24. When Jesus heals him, he looks up and says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. It's like this partial healing. Well, the disciples have this partial sight because they recognize Jesus is the Christ. Like they get it. You're the Messiah. But they don't get it because they think the Messiah is going to do this. But the Messiah is going to do something different. And so even their expectations about themselves gets corrupted. They think they're just going to follow this triumphant leader into victory. And therefore, they have a a real high view of themselves that really needs to get humbled. And that's what Jesus confronts them in. They have tremendous spiritual blindness. It begins with Peter's confession this blindness, oddly enough, in verse 27, Peter confesses he's the Christ. Again, he sees, but not quite, because right after his confession, he rebukes Christ. When Christ says, the son of man has to die. He says, What are you thinking, Christ? You can't die. And Jesus says, your mind is not on God, but on man. And this prompts Jesus to explain what following him really looks like. Chapter 8, verse 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is is what following actually looks like. Disciples, you want to follow me. This is what following looks like. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? Right. Jesus has to save their soul. If he doesn't save their soul through the crucifixion, they will perish. But they don't understand it. They're blind. The disciples really struggle with this concept. Because they've so imbibed the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees, they can't understand that the Christ must die. And even after Jesus transfigured before their eyes in chapter nine, they still don't get it. I mean, they see Christ in all of his glory. They see him, but they don't really see him, which is why there's this voice out of heaven, presumably the father. Well, it is the father says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. In other words, boys, you don't get it. Listen, listen to him. If you have ears to hear, listen to him. Listen to what he's saying. Don't just assume, oh yeah, you know what Christianity is all about. Because you don't. Listen to what he's saying. This is what it looks like to follow my son. So Jesus must foretell his death a second time. Chapter 9, verse 31. But the disciples don't get it. And this is seen in the way they treat others. (laughs) <laughs> we find them in the next scene arguing about who is the greatest among them right after Jesus said he's going to the cross to die. And this leads to a lengthy warning by Jesus about the dangers of personal. Rivalry. And that concludes in verse 50, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. In fact, I actually like to go back, um, chapter nine, verse thirty-five. Notice what he says. He rebukes the disciples. He says, "If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and sir in all." That's what it means to be great. Because that's what I do. That's what John the Baptist did. That's what you should do. If you're the fourth, if you're the fourth seed, that's what it's going to look like. Or fo- fourth soil. Sorry. The disciples actually get rebuked again after hindering the children in chapter 10, verse 13. And then you have this interesting encounter with the rich young ruler. Who seems like, hey, this is, this is the kind of guy that you would like to have as part of your church. He's rich. He's young. He's obedient. But he walks away. The riches of life he was one willing to let go of. And this, this prompts a question by the disciples, again, because of their spiritual blindness, they ask, well, if, if a rich man, in order for a rich man to be saved, you have to enter the eye of a needle, who can be saved? See, they don't get it. It's not about being rich. It's not about obedience. Their hearts need to be changed. They're blind. And Jesus says, with man it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And then Jesus must proclaim his death a third time. That's how it's possible. And notice again, right after Jesus proclaims his death a third time. What are the disciples talking about? Hey, Jesus, James and John, can we sit on your right hand when you're in glory? To which Jesus responds in verse 43, 1043. But it's not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom of many. That's what it means to be the Son of God. That's what the Son of God came to do. You want to follow me? Follow me. Deny yourself. And the... the, this section ends with the healing of Bard, blind Bartimaeus, who is, again, a good example of this fourth kind of soil, this good response, because he leaves behind everything after he's healed and follows Christ on the way. And so the section ends as if to ask the question Do you really understand what it means to follow Christ? And are you really willing to take up a cross and follow Him? Are you really willing? And I know we talk just off the cuff. I know we talk a lot about death, and I don't. I don't mean to be morose. The reason I emphasize the cost of following Christ, and it may be death, is because that's what the Bible says. And I know for us it might not be that. But what else might it be? It might be your career. I hope not, but it could be your family. Could be. could be your money. It could be your friends. Are you willing to deny yourself the things that are most precious to you? Because you realize how much you need Christ. I mean, Jesus couldn't, couldn't be more clear. If you think you can come to Christ and it might not cost you everything, you're spiritually blind. And this, of course, leads to the, third, the second section. Sorry, the third section. That's a section section at the temple in Jerusalem. And you have the responses of the religious leaders. And interestingly enough, it starts with the triumphal entry and it. The section will end with the triumphal entry. But the real triumphal entry, Jesus says in chapter 13, explains what it's going to be like when he really comes to reign. But when he comes into Jerusalem in chapter 11, it's actually to pronounce judgment on the city. And that's really the, the theme of what's going on. And that's symbolized in the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple. And then it's made very explicit in this parable of the tenants. Chapter 12, verse 1 through 12. The tenants kill the son. And then in chapter 12. We're also presented with multiple attempts to undermine Jesus. They they ask him questions about Caesar. I mean, paying taxes to Caesar. Ask him questions about the resurrection. What's the greatest commandment? Whose son is the Christ? They're probing him. They're saying, do you you really have authority? Do you really know the word like we do? And after all of these things, Jesus then warns his disciples. notice, Notice this. This is key. Chapter 12, verse 38. Beware of the scribes. Why? Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. What does Jesus what does Mark draw our attention to right after that? The widow who gives up everything she has. He says, don't be like the scribes whose hope is in this life. Be like the widow who gave everything she had. Section ends with Jesus revealing what his true triumphal entry will be in chapter 13. And notice, notice the very end of this section. The last verse, 35. Therefore, be on the alert for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening at midnight or when the rooster crows are in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say, I say to all be on the alert, be on the alert, be awake, stay awake. Don't be spiritually blind. And so it leaves us with this question to think about. Are we spiritually awake? Or are we asleep? Is our investment in this life? Like the scribes? Like the religious leaders? Like the disciples? Or is it in the next life? Where are you invested? Are you awake? Or are you asleep? Brings us to the final section, the one we're most familiar with. And in this section, you have various responses to Jesus regarding his betrayal and death. I love how it begins. You have the widow and then you have in chapter 14, Mary. Mary has faith. She gets it. She knows what the Christ is supposed to do. That's why she anoints him for his. Burial. Burial. And it cost her. What does it say? A bottle of pure nard. A massive sacrifice. And then you have the response of the fake disciple. Judas betrays Jesus. Why? He's not. He's not what he. Not. He, Jesus is not what he expected. And what's he to betray him for? Money. Where was Judas' investment? Judas says, if he's not going to bring me what I want, I'm at least going to cash out now. And Jesus says, woe to that man. And then you have the response of the weak disciples. You have Peter's pride, chapter 14, verse 26. I will never betray you. And then in... Chapter fourteen thirty two, Jesus is praying in Gethsemane and he rebukes the disciples. Why? What is? What did the disciples do wrong? Notice this. Verse forty. He found them sleeping. Verse forty one. He came a third time and said to them, "Are you still sleeping and resting?" They're asleep. They don't know what's coming. And Jesus has made it very clear, but they don't get it. Why? Because Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're supposed to make my life better. Look, you go around healing people. They're expecting this triumphal entry. And when the, when the soldiers come in and they take Jesus and lead him away to be crucified and they see Judas betray him, what do they do? They flee. like A bunch of cowards. Why do they flee? It's not just because they have fear. Yes, it is because of the fear. It's because they don't understand who Jesus is and what Jesus must do. Verse 50, they left him and fled. And notice this, verse 51. A young man followed him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. And he pulled free the linen sheet and escaped naked. Almost assuredly, this is, is this is the writer of the gospel, Mark himself. Mark's saying, yeah, even me. I fled because I was blind. I didn't expect this. This is not what I thought it meant to be a Christian. And then you have the response of the religious authorities. Chapter 14, verse 53. Of course, they have him crucified. The response of Peter, he denies Christ three times. And then you have the response of Pilate. Pilate has him crucified. Why? Because he wants to please the crowds. Fearing the crowds, it says. Not fearing Christ. Then you have the crowds response. They choose Barabbas, the criminal, over Christ. And then Pilate hands them over to be crucified, and you have the soldiers responding to Christ. How do the soldiers respond to Christ? They mock him. And while he's being crucified, the chief priests mock him. Even the men being crucified with him mock him. But then there's a remarkable and very unexpected thing that happens in verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Catch that. Who said that? The soldier crucifying him. So of all people, the the centurion is the one who who, who truly believes. And then right after that, you have Joseph of Arimathea having courage. And no, no, Joseph of Arimathea is, is described as one of the religious authorities. The one in the first, the first kind of soil. He takes courage and has him buried in his own tomb. And then you have the, the women. It ends with the women. And this is very Interesting. final response we see from the women who come to his tomb after he's resurrected is this they're told by the angel verse 7 but go tell his disciples and Peter he's going ahead of you to Galilee there you will see him just as he told you go tell his disciples how do they respond how do they respond they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, because they were afraid. And that's how the gospel ends. I know there's an additional portion there. It was added later on. We'll talk about that when we get there. If you're really curious about that, I don't mind talking about it afterwards. But the gospel ends that way. Do you see, there's, there's very few heroes in the gospel of Mark. And Mark's saying, well, which one are you going to be like? Are you going to be afraid and flee? Or are you going to take courage and are you going to proclaim? How will you respond to this good news? See, just as the the ladies fled for fear and trembling, and just as Mark himself fled during the rest of Jesus... When Mark is writing this gospel, he's no longer fleeing. Mark is ministering throughout the ancient Near East and he eventually plants a church in Alexandria, Egypt that becomes probably, I would argue, the strongest church of all in Alexandria, Egypt. And Mark dies by being burned alive While preaching to his church in Alexandria. The man who fled. Now dies. And not just Mark. But all the disciples. And it prompts this question. Are you willing to follow Christ even as he did? Or you like the Pharisees who are threatened by his authority and you're threatened by what he might ask you to give up, what following Christ might cost you. Or you like the crowds, you, you really want Christ's help and you realize he's the only one that can help you, but you really struggle to obey his words. Or you like the disciples who are willing to follow Christ on the sunny days. But when the heat gets turned up and you get persecuted, you get reviled, you get slandered, you get robbed, you get beaten, you throw in the towel and you go home. Remember Mark, Peter, and all the rest. Fled because they didn't understand what following him really meant that's why they fled but when they did understand they were truly willing to follow right mark preaches in alexandria is burned to death peter and paul paul was beheaded peter was crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified like his lord andrew Goes to Greece and Asia Minor, preaches the gospel, and he's crucified there. Thomas is speared to death while preaching the gospel in India. You see this? They're courageous and they're proclaiming. They're proclaiming. And what's it cost them? Do they get riches? Do they get fame? Do they get lauded? No, they get killed. Like the Baptists and like their Lord. Philip was killed by a Roman official after his wife converted through his preaching. The official's wife. Matthew was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. James was stoned and then clubbed to death in Jerusalem. Simon the Zealot ministered in Persia and then was killed after refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. And then, of course, we know John is exiled to the island of Patmos and there he dies. None of them got what they were expecting when they started to follow Christ. And yeah, they fled. But then they came back. And then they went and proclaimed. Question for us is, are you willing to follow Christ even as they did? Let's pray. Father, if we're honest, we struggle with this. We don't want to be Peter. We're warned by Peter. We don't want to be Peter and say we would never deny you. But Lord, we also don't want to perish for eternity. And so our only plea is that you would do a miraculous work in our heart. Spirit, that you would change our hearts if we yet are yet to believe to truly believe and truly be willing to follow you that you would do that miraculous work of causing us to be born again that today would be the day of salvation and lord if we're already saved and yet we are like the disciples or maybe just partially blind we don't quite get it we're just numb because of the superficial mucky teaching in our culture our own ignorance, or even our own hard-heartedness. I pray that you would give us the resolve that we need to truly follow you. Not for praise, not for proclamation of us, but so that you would be, you would be proclaimed by us to every nation. Because God, we long to see people from every tribe, from every nation, exalting you praising you for your forgiveness and your grace and mercy. And may, it, may some of that come because of our investment as a church in the proclamation of the gospel to reach the ends of the earth. Make us evangelistic. And give us the courage, give us the conviction to be such a people. We ask these things in your name. Amen.